Traditional biblical counseling does not work well if a counseling session sprinkled here and there is all you have. That strategy places the burden of change on the counselor rather than on the individual who needs a new kind of habituated lifestyle. The biblical counselor who is doing the work of counseling by himself or herself without a community of Christ-like disciple-makers is like a medical doctor on a battlefield with a black bag doing triage. That is a heavy burden for a medical doctor. It is a heavy burden for a biblical counselor when he or she, they are the only ones that's doing the work because there are no supplemental helps coming primarily from the local church. Biblical discipleship, according to the New Testament, happens in a 24-7 context where the person who desires change is availing himself to all the means of grace the Lord provides for transformation. Now, in this podcast, I have listed a few of these means of grace that have worked for me when helping a struggling soul carve out a new way of living. In fact, I'm going to list for you 10 things that I have historically implemented into my counseling because I don't want to be the medical doctor with with a black bag doing triage on a battlefield. I won't help. I won't back up. I won't supplemental resources because I know after all these years of counseling, doing it by myself is not the best idea. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas, and you're listening to the Life Over Coffee podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. For those of you who are listening to the podcast, if you would give us a five-star rating and write a review on your podcast platform that you're listening to now I would really appreciate it because it does help us to grow organically and algorithmically as we take the practical message of Christ globally. The title of the article that I'm that I'm presenting to you here is 10 Habits That Will Transform Any Counseling Process. Now, I want to begin this by sharing with you a little story from my old friend Biff. Biff and Mabel are always worth a good story, and this is what Biff told me recently. He said, I have a miserable marriage, and my spouse does not want to make things better. My church sent me to you because they said I needed a professional. I'm discouraged, and I'm not sure I want to continue my marriage, though I do not have biblical grounds for divorce. Dear friends, let me introduce you to a typical conversation that I have had more times than I can remember. Biff's complaint that I just shared with you is not an exact transcript of all of those discussions, though it paraphrases what I hear from despairing men and women who come to our ministry for help. By the time they get to us, their marriages have been on the rocks for several years. Their church has not made a dent in their problems for various reasons. And please understand, I am not laying their problems in the lap of the church. I'm not. My bigger point here is that there always must be more than a single dimension approach to soul care. I trust that through this article that I have written here that I can widen the scope of what needs to happen. But but before I get into those 10 things that I have implemented historically, I just want to add to the complexity. Uh, 
because it will be rare for a, a couple or an individual to come to you and there not be additional complicating problems. A complicating problem is that thing that sits on top of the original problem. And so we have Biff coming for counseling, hoping that counseling is going to settle his marriage problems. But as you get into the marriage problems, you're going to find additional complicating problems. Now, I want to share eight of those with you, and this list is not extensive, but it just gives you an idea. And here's my point. I want you to understand how it really burdens biblical counseling or the biblical counselor if that's all you have. And so you bring a problem, and then maybe some of these complicating problems, put it in the lap of the counselor and say, help me. That is not how the New Testament teaches change. And so here are some of the complicating factors in addition to the presenting problem. Number one, one spouse does not want to work on their marriage. Well, that would be a huge burden for the biblical counselor. Number two, their problems have gone on for so long that the spouses become bitter, angry, unforgiving, and hopeless. Number three, the church has not been as proactive as it could be. Now, again, this is not necessarily a criticism of the church. Perhaps the couple is in a good church, but they have not accessed all of the church, all that the church provides. Number four, they listen to different voices. Weak sermons, unhelpful friends, popular, popularized books, subjective impressions, and secular counseling. Number five, they have isolated themselves from a biblical community, the people who could help them. Number six, they're not willing to do the hard work necessary to change. Number seven, they expect counseling to cure. In a short period, what they spent years dismantling. I don't want anybody to put me in that position because I, I will probably tell them it, it will not work unless there has to be other conditions brought in. And of course, I will get into that in just a moment. And then finally, number eight, they are in spiritual warfare against the enemies who have set up strongholds to keep them in bondage. Any one of these complicating factors can sabotage what they hope to happen during counseling. If counseling sessions are all you have, the counselees must be all in, ready, focused, prayed up, committed to following through with the process. And if they're not like this, and every counselor needs to vet to see if this counselee is all in, ready, focused, prayed up, and committed to the process. Because if they're not, and you are all they have, that's going to be some tough trudging, and it can get difficult in a hurry. Placing multi-decades of problems on a counselor's shoulders, it misunderstands the issue and it misunderstands the typical change process. When a person comes to me for counseling, historically, I counsel for two hours. That has always been my standard counseling process. There are exceptions to this because sometimes they just don't have that time, but I would say 99% of the time, all of my counseling sessions are two hours. I won't get into the reasons why I do that other than say that I have a relational model of biblical counseling, not this 
herding cattle through a, a stall mentality of just moving through every 55 minutes. No biblical discipleship or counseling is a relationship because that's how it's presented in the Bible. Well, I can only imitate that in a very small way, a fractional way, by having a two-hour session with them, and I try to make it as relational as possible. But think about this. If they come back at all, let's say next week, well, there's 168 hours in a week. I have them for two hours, and there's 166 more hours. And so this brief encounter with me makes it nearly impossible to help them. Upon leaving the counseling session, they re-enter their chaotic world. And so, again, here's the math. 168 hours in a week. And there's two hours of counseling. So that's 120 minutes of non-chaotic time with me. And the 120 minutes that they have with me, it is competing with three or 400 hours, if they don't meet me for a couple of weeks, of marital conflict, frantic schedules, and unending distractions. That two hours gets swallowed up in the chaos of their lives. This scenario is standard for a couple looking for help for their complicated marriage problems that have been spinning in dysfunction for years, if not decades. I suppose if you thought of me as a salesman for biblical counseling, I am doing doing a poor job. My sales pitch is not presenting a high view of biblical counseling as the solution for troubled marriages. Actually, I'm giving you a dismal report based on what I've said thus far. But my greater hope is to provide you with a better vision for how change happens. I would not want anyone to put all of their hope for change eggs in a biblical counseling basket. Now, let me say this. I am aware that biblical counseling can work well for my BC friends who get frustrated with me because I tend to knock biblical counseling pretty consistently because I should. As much as I honor it, much as I appreciate it, I cannot help but be transparent about the other side of the reality is that it also doesn't work well, and there are reasons why. And I've written about that, and I'm I'm sharing another reason why, because nobody should put a biblical counselor, give him a black bag on a battlefield with doing triage with broken people. The Bible doesn't even teach that. And I think sometimes biblical counselors can so amplify and overinflate what biblical counseling is that they detach themselves from New Testament discipleship. And then also, counselees can have this singular vision for discipleship, biblical counseling, and now both of them are in a mess, and it will be very difficult for it to happen. There is a better way for discipleship, or biblical counseling if you wish, to happen, and that is contextualized in a caring community of Christ-like disciple-makers. Paul said in Corinthians 15.33, be not deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. If you flip that on its head, well, then the inverse is true. Good company can help establish good morals. And so the typical counselee has diverse forms of chaos in their lives, whether it's the problem that they present to you or some of those complicating factors that I mentioned earlier. 
And while he meets with me, I mean, the counselee usually says that the counselee makes sense and he's encouraged by our time together. And then they re-enter a chaotic life that can dismantle all the good accomplished during a counseling session. It's like going back into a big black hole that sucks all the goodness out of them. And so knowing this, I try to create counseling context, companions to add to our time together, not to replace the biblical counseling necessarily, but to add to our time together to maintain good habits throughout the week, that 168 hours that I am not with them. This perspective is an essential step for successful counseling. A wise counselee perceives how the odds for long-term and successful change are not in his favor. And this is motivating him to do more than periodic meetings every week, every two weeks with a counselor. He must commit to and cooperate with the counselor's plan to address short-term, long-term issues. And presumably, he will see how his bad companions in his life have not been to his benefit. Before he came to counseling, he had surrounded himself with relationships, context, and things that led to a place of personal and relational ruination. After counseling, he begins to see life through a new lens. He addresses those poor choices by making sweeping and radical changes. He examines everything in his life that hinders his relationship with God and his spouse, and he coins a new mantra. If it blocks my walk with Christ... Or my spouse, I will cut it out of my life. He has become sick and tired of being sick and tired. He's desperate for change and convinces the counselor that he will do anything to transform. He follows through with his new determination by availing himself to all the means of grace that the Lord provides. Any person willing to do whatever it takes to change has set himself up to receive God's empowering favor. There is favor from God for this new attitude. Some of the most vital things that that person can do as they get ready for counseling is to be able to admit what is wrong with them and then be willing to open themselves up to other people. This is one of the ways that you can vet the seriousness of a counselee. It is important for me to vet the seriousness as best as I can subjectively understand it. And the attitude that I just laid out for you over the past couple of minutes should be the attitude of anybody that's serious about change. Biff needs a lifestyle change. And so Biff asks the counselor, how can he surround himself with good companions, things that will have a transformative influence on his life? If that's the question that your counselee is asking, everybody's in a good place. Biff's spiritual life is similar to his physical life. If he wanted to lose weight, he would do more than one good thing. That's not how you lose weight. If he's going to mature spiritually, he must think comprehensively. If it hinders his walk with the Lord, it must go. Out with the old in with the new, as Paul said in Ephesians 4. And though there are many companions that he could implement in his life, 
What I'm going to do here is I'm going to suggest 10. These are my 10. They're my 10, not yours. And I have shared these 10 with many counselees for many years. Now, these won't work for every person. So don't codify this. In fact, don't codify anything that I, I tell you other than the gospel. The gospel is unchangeable, and there is only one way, not many ways. And I like to distinguish between the articles, the and a. There is the way, and there is a way. This is a way. And what I would appeal to you to do is to listen and then adapt, add, tweak, create your own strategies. If you're a counselee, you create your strategies to help yourself transform. If you are a counselor or a disciple maker leading to this, then you listen to these 10 things that I'm going to share with you and you adapt and do the same thing. The big idea is not that you do what I do, but the big idea is that don't put yourself on a battlefield with a black bag doing triage by yourself. The title of this article is 10 Habits That Will Transform Any Counseling Process. Here are the 10 things that I have historically used. Number one, customized homework. Doing work outside the counseling office is a standard practice that most counselors employ. Biblical counselors have been talking about homework longer than I have been doing biblical counseling. And so what I do is I tell my counselees, I want you to take me home with you. And so what what I do is I create some kind of customized homework for them, and it's usually something that I have is something that I have written or developed in some way, and that's what I mean by taking me home with you. And so you meet me face to face in real time and space, and then you can take something home with you that I have created as well. So I'm continuing to walk with you throughout your week, even though we're not meeting in a a counselor's office. So number one is customized homework. Number two is micro sessions. Now, micro sessions works for me because I have a sanctification center shoved up in, in cyberspace, and that is our website. I have millions of words, literally, in articles, podcasts, and, and videos, and, and other resources, and they're all in our sanctification center. And so what I'll do many times, like say this, I could give this article to a counselee just to develop a worldview for counseling so that they'll have an expectation of what I expect, and they kind of see a path forward of what it's going to take for them in order to work through whatever they are struggling with. And I can send an article. A lot of times I'll give a, a one-hour webinar, and so now they have me presenting a web an animated webinar on a particular topic, and these are micro-sessions. An article like this, for example, could take six weeks for them to work through if they work through all the links that are embedded inside. And so I do customized homework. I do micro-sessions. Number three, we have a supporting community. This is a membership option to for them to create a community or to enter into our community in our sanctification center. And that's for a small membership fee. And this is not something that I actually push on people. I, I don't I don't push this. I present if they want to, that's fine. In one way, it's neither here nor there, but I want them to know what's available for them. And many people do like to do that. They want to interact with Christians who are serious about change, and they're really interested in speaking into each other's lives. And so we do have a lot of people in our supporting community. But I do want you to understand that our community and our sanctification center is not the local church. 
We have no desire to be, no desire to replace it. In my view, every road from our ministry leads to the local church. I have a very high view of the local church, and so when I talk about a supporting community, I am talking about a supplemental community that some people uh, sometimes become supporting members because they like that daily interaction. By the way, I do direct video messages uh, Monday through Friday, and so they get anywhere from a 5 to 15-minute video message from me, and so that's additional training, and so they do appreciate our training site. That's our supporting community, number three. Number four, bring a friend to the counseling session. Having a friend come to the counseling session is an excellent plan that any counselee could do. Imagine having your friend sit in your counseling sessions and hearing what you are learning. Your friend becomes an extension of the counselor because he or she can see you throughout the week. So not only do you take me with you through customized homework or micro sessions or you participating in our community, but you also have a friend sitting in and learning what you're learning so that they can also be with you. You're trying to, I'm trying to fill up that 168 hours when they're not in the counseling office. Number five, small group life. If your local church has small groups, you can position yourself in the broader community to enhance change. They can pray for you. They can ask loving questions. They can spur you on to loving good works. Number six, church meetings. Corporate meetings, superb context to worship God with your friends in these corporate gatherings. These weekly venues gives you another opportunity to hear from and respond to the Spirit of God as He illuminates you toward change. You'll also be able to listen to the preached word too. Number six, church meetings. Number seven, serving others. The opposite of a self-centered lifestyle is loving God and others more than yourself. Esteeming others more will have a powerful effect on your life. Typically, we're selfish. Typically, that's what we find with counselees. We're all selfish. What better way to repent of selfishness than to give your life to others? Number seven, serving others. Number eight, prayer and Bible study. Now, these are two assumed essentials for any person who wants to grow and change. They are speaking to God through prayer, and God is speaking to them through the Bible. Number eight, prayer and Bible study. Number nine, sharing with others. Letting others know what God is doing in your life will give you further opportunity to walk in humility while permitting others to speak into your life. You see, sin has an isolating effect, motivating people to drift from the community. What better remedy than to tell others how God is working in your life? And so you bring a friend to the counseling session, and then you just begin telling people what God is doing, wherever you may be. It doesn't have to be in the church building at any one of the meetings that the church offers. It can be at the workplace. It could be in the community. You could talk to your neighbor. This is what God's doing. And the more you talk about what God's doing in your life, the more you're going to be taking ownership of what God is doing in your life. And then number 10, disciple making. The end of counseling for all Christians, absolutely, is when they are discipling others. Some believers come to counseling thinking that the end is when they become better. That is merely the halfway point. Complete counseling success is when you go and make disciples. The problem with just getting better is that the temptation to revert to what you used to be would be uh, quite easy. But now if you're pouring yourself into others and now you're creating 
uh, disciples, well, then that is the end of counseling. And so the title of the article is 10 Habits That Will Transform Any Counseling Process. It is a way, not the way. Here are mine. Number one, customized homework. Number two, micro sessions. Number three, our supporting community, if you wish. Number four, bring a friend. Number five, small group life. Number six, church meetings. Number seven, serving others. Number eight, prayer and Bible study. Number nine, sharing with others. And then number 10, disciple making. The gospel is about pursuing others for redemptive purposes. If a person does not have this vision, if your counselee does not have this vision, there is a good chance that they will drift back into old practices once the counseling ceases. The Lord does not clean us up to look pretty. He cleans us up so that we can go out and cooperate with Him in the cleaning up of others, the end of counseling. The counseling needs to learn and practice the art of discipleship, a total different worldview from what they had been doing when they first met you, the complete opposite. The wise counselee will begin strategizing early in the counseling process how he can take the things he is learning and implement those things in the lives of others. He's starting to look away from himself and into others. This process has a transformative effect on the counselee because the, the teacher learns more than the student. And if the counselee becomes a teacher of the good things he has learned, he will own them. Those good things will become a part of his psyche as he disciples others. And so this is what I would like for you to consider, to make a plan about the things that I have shared. Would you take each one of these 10 counseling companion contexts that I have just listed for you and write out a game plan for how you can practically implement those concepts into your life? If you become stuck on or stumped on any of them, just ask a friend, how can I implement this? And also start developing your community early in the counseling process. If you are a counselee, begin envisioning other people who are close to you about the counseling process because they probably won't have this view more than likely what I am developing here. Bring others into what God is doing into your life. Think practically. Think long term. What would you like to be doing one year from now or 10 years from now? Ask God to give you a vision for the kind of person you believe he wants you to be. And then begin praying about becoming that person. Don't fall into the trap of thinking counseling will solve all your problems. It won't. You are a work in progress, just as I am. When your counseling season is over, you will continue to struggle. Life is not cooperative enough to stop messing with us because we have gone through counseling. And so you have to have a full worldview, not a, a truncated one that's reduced to an artificial season of counseling like that is the, the end all. The ideal situation is to continue to do all of these things or most of these things. The only one that would probably change is, is number four, bringing a friend to counseling, the friend who would come alongside you in need. But I guarantee that if you surround yourself with these good companions that I have listed for you and become fierce about keeping them into your life, the change you long for will come. And it will stay. And your marriage might not change, but you will. You're not responsible for changing others, but you must cooperate with God in improving yourself. 
Let me share a couple applications in the call to action. This first one here is for you counselors or disciple makers. If you're discipling someone, would you send this article podcast video to them? Give your friend this roadmap to a changed life. Appeal to them to consider the cost of change and help them to carve out a transformational plan like these 10 things or whatever you adapt for them. You can tell them how serious a person you can tell how serious a person is about change by their investment in the process. This template that I'm laying out here is one of the ways for you to gauge their seriousness. Number two, how serious is the person in your care? What about the people that are in your care right now? Based on the ideas that I put forth in this podcast, how serious are some of the people? that you're counseling or discipling now? What does your assessment tell you about them? Are they just coming and and kind of mailing it in? Are they even serious about the counseling process? Let's say that they are serious, but do they see how counseling is not the end all because they're gonna continue uh, to need help and therefore they must create an ongoing worldview of discipleship. Number three, think through your care plan for those that you're discipling or those that you are counseling. What would you add? What would you take away from my list? Adapt it to work for you. I appeal to you to have more than counseling sessions, and that's the big big idea. You've got to have more than singular, standalone counseling sessions. Do not be that doctor on the battlefield with a black bag doing triage. And maybe you could even use our sanctification center. Our website is one of your go-to resources, either for counseling purposes or maybe for you to gather homework and resource options or even if you need to consult with us. The title of the podcast is 10 Habits That Will Transform Any Counseling Process. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any questions for us, we do have a discuss option on our website. And we would love to discuss whatever it is that's on your mind. I'm grateful that you have joined me and God bless. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.